Today on Peace Talks Radio, conversations with women working in two communities in the United States to bring nutritious, affordable food to places that have become food wastelands. So once the industry leaves, you still have a large concentration of people that don't have access to basic things like grocery stores. So the supermarkets, once they left, they stayed away. We'll hear about the work of the People's Grocery in West Oakland, California. And the more you take ownership of the place where you live, the more you protect it. And I, I really feel like the more you protect it, the more violence goes down, the more domestic abuse goes down, and the more that the things that we do to ourselves actually decrease. We'll also hear about a research project that hopes to get answers to the food access problems in a neighborhood inside Albuquerque, New Mexico. I believe that doing this project and bringing our youth into these spaces is definitely breaking down barriers. Creating oases in food deserts to help promote peace and security. Today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or reducing conflict that we encounter between individuals, in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. When American psychologist Abraham Maslow introduced the hierarchy of needs in his seminal work, A Theory of Human Motivation, he presented a pyramid that listed the most important fundamental needs of humans toward the bottom. Food, water, breathing, sleep were among the needs supporting the base of the pyramid. Only one level up was safety, including security of body, health, resources, and family. If one's safety is threatened by war, disaster, or family violence, a peaceful life is not possible. Anxiety, PTSD, and trauma passed down through the generations can follow. There are communities around the world that don't have their basic physiological and safety needs adequately met. Nearly a billion people on the planet are undernourished, according to 2010 figures, roughly 14% of the world's population. And some of these communities in deficit are here in the United States, in places you normally wouldn't think of as being at risk. Neighborhoods in or near large urban centers where access to nutritious, affordable food has disappeared. And in some cases, what has followed is an overarching blight. Communities with gang problems, mistrust, and fear among residents. Some social scientists see a link between food insecurity and a lack of peace in these neighborhoods. So experimental programs have been launched in some places with, so far, encouraging results. And we'll hear about a couple of them today on Peace Talks Radio. One in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and one in West Oakland, California, where Nikki Henderson directs the work of The People's Grocery. She talked with our Carol Boss, and in a moment, Jacqueline Thomas will join in. She's been a West Oakland resident for many years who now works for People's Grocery, too. Nikki, what's been the mission of the People's Grocery since its inception in West Oakland in 2002? The mission of People's Grocery has been to improve the health and economy of West Oakland through a local food system. We've invited you to talk about this program on our show about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. How do you see the People's Grocery's work as making peace and reducing conflict in a community? Well, you know, when I ask people when they feel the most at peace, a lot of times the response I get back is when they're sharing a meal with a loved one. And I also feel like if you want to create peace, especially between two family members that may not be speaking to each other, 
you get them together over a meal. And I think that the act of eating food, but more importantly, sharing food, is a way to really create peace and inspire peacemaking among people who may be at conflict or who just want to build a deeper relationship with each other. And I also think that we have a couple of programs that are really specific to conflict resolution and building relationship. Well, in regards to the first thing you said about um, people sharing a meal together and sitting down and eating, how does that relate in terms of what you do at People's Grocery? A majority of our work, I'd say, starts with community celebration. I mean, when I think about all of our programs, they're very wrapped up in community dinners and major events at our garden and weekly garden events. I think our first interaction with quite a few people in the community is come share some food with us. So then when we start talking about more abstract concepts like nutrition and diabetes and how much access do you have to healthy food, you know, they have a mouthful of really good salad and they're much more <laughs> much more engaged in terms of having a conversation. When the People's Grocery was founded in West Oakland in 2002, it was with the understanding that the health and economy, the well-being, the quality of life of a community can be improved with access to nutritious food. What was the significance of making that connection? You know, when People's Grocery first started, I think there were a lot less healthy foods activities happening there than there are now. We do have a small cooperative. We as in West Oakland. West Oakland now has a small foods cooperative and there's a small farmer's market. There's a few urban gardens, but the situation was really dire 10 years ago. There weren't any grocery stores. There's still not a full service grocery store. And the kinds of food people were eating and sharing was destructive, frankly, to their bodies and to the community. And so really thinking about a way to not just improve the economic vitality of the community through development, but to do that in a way that actually improves people's health at the same time, food was a natural nexus between those two. And so that was why the connection, I think, was made. Nikki, why don't you give us a little history of uh, West Oakland? How would you describe West Oakland in the 50s, 1950s and 60s? And to be clear, I wasn't even alive then. So this is what I've read from books and stories and things. But it seems like in the 1950s and 60s, especially when it came to grocery stores, there were actually mom and pop grocery stores. There were several large full service grocery stores. And more importantly, people gardened a lot more frequently than it sounds like they do now. So the abundance of healthy food in the community was was really, really vibrant. And West Oakland was also... It was full of people that were really, really active in trying to transform their community. So if we're talking about the 60s, you know, the late 60s, when it comes to the rise of the Black Panthers, the Panthers started in West Oakland. So people in West Oakland, not only did they have access to certain services and resources that they don't have access to now, but they were so concerned with the transformation of their community and they were so empowered to do something about it that they acted. Yeah, I was alive at that time myself. And um, actually, I was doing some reading, too. And it, and it sounds like with the, the construction of freeways and also the BART system, it really demolished a lot of a lot of buildings and homes were demolished and that uh, it, it isolated the community and that a lot of the stores that were there providing food left. Do you have anything you'd want to say about the impact of that change on the local food system? 
Well, I think what you said was actually right on that a lot of the development projects, not only in West Oakland, but across the country, kind of the rise of the urban inner city has a lot to do with the way that development projects happen in inner city communities and the entrance of freeways, the entrance of things like post offices and BART stations and all of the things that bar the community in on all sides and make it unattractive for certain industries to stay in. So once the industry leaves, you still have a large concentration of people that don't have access to basic things like grocery stores. So the supermarkets, once they left, they stayed away, which was really unfortunate. West Oakland has been called a food desert. Can you tell us what that means? Sure. And, you know, sometimes we don't like to use the phrase food desert because desert, a desert is actually a place with a lot of abundance. Um, They may not have a lot of water, but they do have critters and cacti and all kinds of wonderful things. So I think of it more as a food wasteland. And when we talk about that term, what we mean is a place that has limited access to fresh and healthy foods and not just limited access when it comes to distance, because there is a debate right now about whether food deserts actually exist, because people tend to actually live in close enough proximity to a grocery store to get there with the cars that they generally do have access to, even if they don't own. So we're not talking just about proximity. We're talking about the convergence of proximity to healthy food with affordability of that healthy food and accessibility when it comes to the type of healthy food. Because if you are a Vietnamese family and your healthy foods look very different than the USDA food pyramid, then you may not have very much access. Very often when you hear the word food desert, paired with that is food insecurity. Yes. How big a problem is this nationally? Oh, it's a very big problem nationally. I think there was a study done a little while ago that said something like, one out of 10 people in the country, maybe even more than that, are food insecure. And that's a big deal, especially when you look at the fact that the most food insecure homes across the country, across the board, are African-American women-led homes. So this is a serious problem in communities of color, and especially with people with limited incomes. Jacqueline Thomas, having lived in West Oakland from the early to mid-90s, then leaving and returning again, You experienced this food insecurity. What was it like for you to be living in a food wasteland? It was very difficult, especially knowing that um, I was living in a wasteland or a food wasteland and not having grown up in that dynamic. Uh, I actually grew up in a place in Santa Rosa, which was abundant with foods and farms and so forth around. When I came uh, and moved to West Oakland, it was somewhat of a a shock. Um, And uh, it was difficult to, uh, especially uh, once I became ill, um, it was difficult to uh, maintain my health because it was difficult to get healthy food. And that often entailed taking um, a BART ride and a bus ride or uh, three buses if I did not take the the BART um, to a store where I could actually get the type of of foods that I needed. And even then, um, having um, the income to purchase healthier foods um, was also difficult um, because it's more expensive for some reason to eat healthy than it is to uh, not eat healthy. So uh, a lot of that fell on my children um, to 
follow the shopping list and go shopping、uh, for me once I was unable to do that. So it sounds like even with the intention of wanting to eat well, it was a, a tremendous challenge. It was. It actually、um, entailed、uh, shopping at、um, possibly two to three places in order. To、um, get the right balance of foods that、uh, we needed, we would go、um, to a major grocery store in Emeryville for meats. We would go to Chinatown for our vegetables and things like that. So,、um, or for fresh、uh, vegetables that we could actually afford. Not that the major store didn't have fresh vegetables. We could not afford those vegetables there, so we would have to go to Chinatown. Uh, to um, to uh, the venues that had the more、um, affordable、uh, fresh vegetables, and、uh, so that entails a, a big、um, allocating a nice chunk of your budget for travel just to go shopping. Nikki Henderson, what was the original approach People's Grocery took to pursue community change? That is to improve the health and economy of West Oakland through food. Originally, we approached that using urban agriculture first, so growing the food, then taking that food into enterprises that were led by youth in the community. Our first enterprise was the Mobile Market, a market on wheels, and then through that enterprise, doing health and nutrition demonstrations and nutrition education, so that you could raise the demand for healthy food. That would then go back, feed back into the enterprise, which would create more money to do the production, which would create more food, and it was a feedback loop. That was all eventually supposed to culminate in a grocery store, hence the name People's Grocery. Can you tell us about the mobile market and what the impact of it was in West Oakland? The mobile market was a converted Adwala truck, I think. I can't remember what kind of truck it was, but it was a truck that we painted brightly purple and orange with youth with purple and orange T-shirts with hip hop music blasting and healthy produce. And from what I hear, this is before my time at People's Grocery. But from what I hear, we hit every house in West Oakland over the course of a summer, and made sure that if they weren't home, we went back again. So, I think one of the greatest successes of the mobile market was that it was an outreach strategy to really introduce People's Grocery to the community. So that once we started our produce box, which actually is much more effective in getting food to people on a regular basis, people knew who we were. And they trusted us, and they knew that we were actually trying to solve a very serious problem. Well, tell us about.、Um, I think you were referring to the grub box. Yeah, the grub box. So, the grub box is a food distribution program that's kind of a fusion community-supported agriculture program. And community-supported agriculture is a system in which customers pay the farmer directly at the beginning of a season and purchase a share, so to speak, of the farm. So that if the farmer suffers from blight or weather or any of the other things that happen that you just can't anticipate when you're growing food, the customer is bearing the burden in addition to the farmer. And so we use that model, but we also subsidize that with food from an aggregator who aggregates food from local producers, and all of that is outsourced to a farm called Dig Deep Farms and Produce, which is in the San Leandro area. So functionally, what that looks like is that if you want to get a produce box. You can order with us, and then on Tuesdays and Fridays, you can choose what size bag of groceries that you get, and it's all fresh and local produce. And in terms of purchasing that as a consumer, it, it's affordable for all, any resident that would like it. 
Yeah, we actually uh, just debuted our new pricing system. So you can pay $10 for a five-pound bag of food. You can pay $15 for a 10-pound bag of food, $20 for a 15-pound bag of food, and $25 for a 20-pound bag of food. Tell us for a moment something about Dig Deep Farm. Dig Deep Farms and Produce is a really, really wonderful program. It's uh, fiscally sponsored by the Sheriff's Activities League in the Ashland-Cherryland area of California. And it's a program whose goal is to create an alternative way for youth in the community to engage instead of being on the streets. So many of the people that work there are people of color, African-American and Latino. And the goal is actually for community benefit. And so we wanted to find a farm that actually shared our social justice values. And we were very, very happy to find them so that we could work with them. So it's really working with um, so-called vulnerable youth? Yes. Well, it seems that People's Grocery um, does a lot of collaboration and forms partnerships. And the one that you have with Dig Deep Farm is, it seems to be spreading what I know you've called the health and the wealth. Do you think part of what People's Grocery is doing is extending community in a sense? I would definitely say so. And with things like the grub box, you can see it really obviously. But I would also say that it goes between communities as well, because one of the symptoms of being an organization like People's Grocery is that it's not just people that are vulnerable and in food insecure communities that like us. It's people that are actually very food secure, who care very much that down the street from their house is a community that's really food insecure. So I think that we do a lot of bridging of social capital as well when those who are more privileged come and see what we do and really, really want to figure out ways to help. Can you explain what you mean when you say social capital? Sure. So um, social capital as in the social networks that determine the way that resources are distributed. So I'm thinking also of our interns is a great example. We usually get a flood of young people that really want to intern in our office, and they're usually white, and they're usually people of privilege. And so they'll come to our office from privileged backgrounds and really just get an eye-opening experience when it comes to working in an underserved community and working with people that deal with food insecurity every day. And they're completely transformed by the time they leave our office. And I think more importantly, the transformation goes both ways. Because we don't, we don't act in, reverse, in a reverse paternalistic kind of way where you, white person, must learn how to be good with people of color. It's really the exchange that needs to happen, the equal partnership that needs to happen with people from all different types of socioeconomic backgrounds if we're actually going to solve this problem. Because it's everybody's problem. More later with Nikki Henderson of West Oakland's People's Grocery where food access is the focus to help promote peace and security in the neighborhood. In a moment, to Albuquerque, New Mexico, to hear about some research in progress to find out how residents in another neighborhood labeled as a food desert are coming together to strengthen their community over the issue of access to better food. When Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Winners of the University of New Mexico Paul Ray Peace Prize in both 2010 and 2012. All our programs, including this one, are online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're hearing how a couple of neighborhoods in the United States are trying to improve access to good food and thereby reduce anxiety, tension, and separation in their communities. In Santa Barbara Martinez Town, near downtown Albuquerque, New Mexico, a National Institute of Health grant has funded a program called Fiestas that will bring together women in the community over food and interview them to help understand food access problems. Then a board made up of the women will brainstorm some solutions. It's a kind of peacemaking in that it brings people together who normally wouldn't come together to identify community problems and propose solutions. While this brainstorming begins, some gardening programs already underway seem to have been having a noticeable effect in the neighborhood, according to Veronica Apodaca, who lives in Martinez Town, and we'll hear from her in a moment, and Amy Annexter-Scott, who's helping to coordinate this Fiesta's program. Both spoke with Carol Boss, and Amy started by saying she found some inspiration for her work in a movie theater. Amy Annexter-Scott, there are different ways of thinking about peace. You mentioned to me seeing the film Ten Questions for the Dalai Lama, and he was asked about the conflict in the Middle East and what can be done to make peace there. And you tell me his response. Mm -hmm. His response was more picnics and more festivals. What did you think when you were watching that film and heard that response? That's probably not a response we might think the Dalai Lama would give to such a question. It resonated with me. It surprised me. I didn't expect that. Um, But from the work in community, with community, um, that I've had the opportunity to be involved with, and which you'll hear more of during this discussion, it made sense. So in a way, when you walked out, you thought, did you think that was um, kind of a re- profound remark for him to make? One might take it as whimsical coming from the Dalai Lama because uh, he can be whimsical. He it, can be. I mean, he's very the Dalai Lama through this film and, and other things that I've seen, his presentations and his reading. He's approachable. He is really about personal relationships, about individual happiness, happiness and, uh, and practice and action with others in community. So when he responded to the question, more picnics and festivals, it meant to me, why, why not sit in community with people, share food, break bread, watch our children play, get to know each other, discuss things in our community or in a safe place, or maybe it's not so safe. Maybe that was to have more picnics and festivals you know, in the Gaza Strip. Um, but how do we come together? And coming together around food can create a peaceful Well, I thought about the phrase coming to the table together, which we've certainly heard in regards to diplomatic efforts, one side negotiating with the other, making peace agreements. So any thoughts on that and how you see that as a metaphor and how this meshes with your project and about the communities you've worked with? Well, uh, it's interesting that you say coming together at the table. I mean, there are summits, yes. And in fact, the Dalai Lama has said We should have more picnics and less summits. I mean, summits are important. The World Food Summit, many places where people come together to discuss policy and action points. But when I talk about coming to the table, I mean, who can sit at the table? Who has access to the table? Who can bring food to the table? Or if you don't have food, can you come to the table and share share food with someone? 
Um, so there are opportunities. To me, the table means access. It means opportunity. It means equity. It means healthy food to share um, our stories, our needs, and how we can work together to achieve our aims in community. So how does all this mesh with your Fiestas project? Well, it meshes on several different levels. I work with the Office for Community Health. I work in community. I work with community partners like Veronica Apodaca and others in Santa Barbara Martinez Town. Here we have a community that is really in the, in the middle of um, Albuquerque, very close to downtown, a couple of miles away from the university, uh, next to with the largest high school in the community. It was once an agricultural community. There are acequias. Those are small irrigation channels that run throughout the community. They're now dried up through uh, urban development. Um, these acequias were were actually shut, shut down, but there's still some farming going on there, small gardens. It's a food desert. There is little access to affordable and nutritious and culturally relevant food in this community. It's a food desert. Often when we think about food deserts, we think about a rural community. Many people may have to drive 100 miles round trip to be able to access food. But here is a community where uh, the ability to access food is not based on, some of it's based on mileage, but it's based on are there community stores? Can people afford food? What types of uh, food is accessible? There are fast food stores in this community, a few small community stores which um, support the community. Some listening to this conversation might ask, why aren't there decent grocery stores in Martinez Town? I believe that it's zoning. It's our neighborhood. We are a little village within the city. We did have grocery stores in Martinez Town. They were family run. We do have a couple of spots like the Chili Connection and uh, Manuel's Grocery Store, but those don't really have the full range that a, a big grocery store would have. Have so I believe that with this project, I think that it's going to help us to identify a, a, a good way to bring in a, a neat effective grocery store into our neighborhood, whether it be using our fresh produce grown in our community gardens, if it, you know it's employed by our neighbor, our neighbors, our residents. Um, but I believe that it should be conceptualized by our residents. Yeah, within our sector development plan, our community came together and it's in the process mm -hmm. of being approved uh, to find a space where we can create a marketplace where local residents can you know, residents can bring in their business. And the idea is to have a, a little co-op, a, a fresh fruit stand. So I believe that our our neighborhood, we, we are a food desert, but we don't want some big old entity coming in that, you know, like Amy had said, bringing uh, cultural relevant food, things that are we're used to growing, eating, and gathering around. And using our voice, our, our neighborhood association is uh, asking our residents what we want, and they, that's what they've identified. So we want to be able to take that and roll with it, but roll with it in a constructive way in the sense that they are going to construct the idea of how they would like their grocery store to look like, their participation in it, and not to just bring in some some big old mass market, but something that will promote local commerce and, and you know, that you'll always see your neighbor shopping in the same spot that you are. To bring in 
a large grocery store or medium-sized grocery store into a community means that there's a, there's a store there. But how, do people have the economic means to access this food? Can they afford it? We look at our elders. They are now, and many individuals across age, age groups, what do we pay for? Do we pay for food? Or am I going to pay for the medicine that I need? Or what about the gas bill that's gone up? Or what about my children's clothing? People make choices every day. So having a store doesn't mean that they, they would have the opportunity to purchase food. There are fast food stores in Santa Barbara Martinez Town. People have access to that kind of food, and it's cheap. Is it nutritious? No. Is it fast, and is it easy because they're working several jobs? Fiestas is going to address uh, the food desert in this community, in Santa Barbara Martinez Town, by bringing people together, bringing women together to be able to share information, ideas, stories, and hopes to have conversations where they can discuss not only the problems that are happening in their lives and in their community's life, but to talk about solutions. Solutions are addressed by having a safe and or a peaceful or a place, a table to sit down and talk about what's happening in our community. You know, we believe in this community. I don't live in this community. Veronica does. The women that I work with, the women that I partner are in this community and the community association. There are strong voices. There are people who've lived there for years. There are immigrants. There are people who are just moving into the community. We think we'll find some solutions. We now, don't have all the solutions yet, but we think we'll find some of the solutions. Why aren't men a central part of this project? What is it about gathering the women? <laughs> well, men are part of the project, and um, they're being interviewed. They'll be hearing about the information. They're part of these families. They're part of the extended families. Women are often the nutritional gatekeepers in the family. They are the ones, they're the nexus, they're the, the uh, central person in the family that does the shopping, does the cooking, gives up a meal. You know, I've spo- spoke with a woman in the community um, who said to me, my children come home after school and I feed them and they say, mom, you're so picky. Why aren't you having dinner with us? Why are you eating so little? Well, she can't afford to feed everyone at that table. She's having to stretch her meal. And so she's giving up a meal. She's giving up part of her meal so her children can eat. We know from our our partnership in this community around other things around education, around civic around service learning, around some of the, some of the advocacy that women do like to network. Women are relational. Of course, men are too, but women in this community, as in many, are the center of building relationships and relationships around food. So we're starting with the women. We're starting with what do they think about, know about, care about food, what's happening in their food environment. Are they giving up meals, sharing recipes? Um, Who are the elders that they know? What are the issues? Um, and we'll start with them and develop the social relationships with them. And the, then they will share information with the men in their lives and in their community. 
and things that we learn from the project. The community board, which is women, will go back to the community association, will go to community events and get input from the men and the women in the community. How does this process, have you noticed, even in the beginnings of this now, how this has changed the neighborhood? Do you see those changes happening yet? Well, for example, after leaving, well, I would say, our third meeting, one of the community board women told me, wow, I need to go and cook dinner more. You know, I've just been so busy and just picking up fast food, eating it in the car. I need to go and make a salad, and we need to sit down at the table. So just even that process, you know, thinking about the home and creating peace within the home, you know, we all we all like to say that... I live in a, my house is a peaceful environment. That's where I go to rest. But sometimes we lose sight of those those daily interactions of eating and discussing and sharing and helping each other prepare a meal. A meal, excuse me. So you're working now on creating community gardens. Now this is separate from the Fiestas program, and I want you to uh, tell us what your goals are for the gardens and what role does it play now in the community uh, with our gardens. I'm trying to take it a little bit further, and my goal is, and I've already tackled a little bit of it, is to identify at least 10 gardeners within our neighborhood to service. We have five that are identified and who have been serviced last year, and a lot of them are my you know, neighbors that I, I grew up with who I knew, and they're, they're elderly, who knew that they, they had investment in their land, but now they can't really physically do it themselves. So by getting our young spirited kids, kinder through 12th out there to serve, it helps to create relationships, to hear stories, and to connect around one thing that we all do is eat and take in the process of nourishing and watching something grow, whether that be the child and the relationship with the neighbor or the gardener that we're serving or watching the plants grow and then you know, taking taking what we got from it and distributing within the community. It sounds like it, it has a real possibility and, and might be doing so already of breaking down barriers. And, if, and if, if that's the case, can you give us an example, share a story with us? Definitely. One of my favorite examples is, and I just love it, our, our streets are very narrow. Edith is a very small street that people like to race down, even though our speed limit is about 15 miles an hour. And Taking our kids to different gardening sites, it means that they might have to walk, you know, a quarter of a mile to our next gardening location, or it might just be right down the street. But seeing these youth hauling a wheelbarrow with rakes in their hands, I think sends a whole different message to people who usually just drive by our community and have, you know, their perceptions of Martinez Town, to also the neighbors who aren't used to seeing kids walking down the neighborhood in that aspect with those tools ready to serve. So I think that it's changed, and it's, it's definitely sending a, a, a very positive, interesting message to those who see us walking down the streets to go service our, our community gardens. Veronica Apodaca, also, uh, what about the relationship between, um, uh, let's say, teenage, the teenagers and the elderly in the community? Because it was my understanding that the there were some years where elderly people were kind of reticent about coming out onto the streets how has that has that changed i think that it's a work in progress and i that's my goal is to always change that 
that image of youth be, uh, I think that it's changed in the fact that since a lot of the gardeners that I've identified are elderly, who have been lifelong residents, who have roots in the community and still have passion for gardening, uh, are willing to open up their, their space and their, their yards and their secure living environment to our youth. And I think it promotes a lot of conversation that, you know, that might spark up some old memories and even childhood young memories of the elderly that they can share and give what I like to call like consejos, you know, little bits of advice in growing up and and taking care of the land and taking care of yourself and taking care of your family. So I think that and I believe that doing this project and bringing our youth into these spaces is definitely breaking down barriers and allowing people to feel a little bit more comfortable in, in talking with each other and opening up. In talking about the, the gardens that are beginning to um, pop up in Santa Barbara, Martinez Town, Amy, do you think that if more of them begin to flourish and lots of people are partaking in that, that that could actually be something, even though this is not really a part of Fiesta's project, this could be something that could be addressing food insecurity issues in that community. Well, absolutely, and on many levels. And it it actually could be a part of the Fiesta's project if this is one of the themes that comes out of the having the fiestas of meeting with women, of eating together and deciding, let's garden together, or let's support the uh, the Santa Barbara Martinez Town Learning Center. Let's spend time there with our children. Gardens are places uh, to create relationships, relationships with the earth, with the food that we're growing, that we're eating, working together with people that we may or may not know, having conversations. They're places to have picnics. They're places to grow our food. They're places to then grow food and sell food. They're places to have discussions about what food was like in the old days mm-hmm. <laughs> in Santa Barbara Martinez Town and what it could be like now. So, yes, we could. We could, uh, yes. And they create peaceful and stable places for people to interact in community. This is how we want to address food security in the community and to bring together people from very different backgrounds and people who maybe in the community aren't talking to each other over a wall or don't know each other or people who are uh, maybe live five or six blocks away from each other but haven't, um, haven't had the opportunity to meet and will be doing it through this project. The Fiestas Project in the Santa Barbara Martinez Town community of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Amy Annexter Scott is one of the coordinators. We also heard from Veronica Apodaca, a neighborhood leader who lives in Martinez Town. When we continue with our program, back to West Oakland, California, to hear more about the programs the People's Grocery folks are trying out there to bring better food to the community and how it might be helping promote a more peaceful and secure place to live. That's when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break.
This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, with all of our episodes online at peacetalksradio.com. And later we'll tell you how you can help protect this corner of the media landscape for talk about peacemaking. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Carol Boss, who today has been talking with folks who are working to bring better food to neighborhoods that have been labeled food deserts or food wastelands. Urban development has swept away grocery stores and markets that used to serve these communities. Some believe the cheap, non-nutritious food options left over have left the residents lacking in a couple of the key foundations in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, food, health, and safety. The community residents getting together to improve the food scene via special programs are by themselves a lesson in community empowerment, self-determination, and peacemaking of a kind. More now with Nikki Henderson and Jacqueline Thomas, who both work with the People's Grocery Program serving West Oakland. Nikki, can you take a moment and tell us what the Growing Justice Institute with People's Grocery is all about? Sure. Historically, the Growing Justice Institute was a youth program where we worked with youth in the community on our enterprises, like the mobile market and like the grub box. And at some point, we thought about how we could only get a enterprise off the ground once every couple of years because they're so time intensive. And we also thought about how there's so many people in the community that we talked to on a regular basis who were just wonderful, wonderful people and really had great ideas about things that they could do in West Oakland, living in West Oakland, that would really improve the health and economy of the community. So we decided to spread the love and not hoard all the ideas with a small nonprofit staff, but really try to be in partnership with people in the community who were either already doing things or who had really good ideas. So the Growing Justice Institute evolved into a leadership development program for people in the community who either either are already doing a food and health project and or enterprise and want to make it better or who have an idea for one and they want to actually get it off the ground. And so we did an interview process and found a group of people who are just all really incredible. And Jacqueline is certainly, certainly one of those. Well, I know one of the things the Growing Justice Institute um, emphasizes is education. Jacqueline, uh, government health departments and schools have been trying to do nutrition education for years. How do you think People's Grocery has done it differently so that it really has had an impact? Well, it's my belief that um, you can either um, preach or teach. And a lot of times uh, what we do or what we get from the governments or other agencies like that, they're telling us what we should be doing. But a lot of times we need someone to show us what we should be doing. And there's like a perception amongst many people, and especially uh, people of color, um, especially black folks, that uh, healthy food is not tasty food. And so I believe it comes to where you have to show people that healthy food can be tasty food and um, you can enjoy it. And it's not simply some steamed broccoli that is sat on your plate and is very unappetizing. There is a way to make you know, all of it fit together. And so I think that, you know, it's one thing to show the pyramid and so forth, but people get an opportunity to come and participate either in the breakfast program or the 
uh, cooking classes and so forth and actually get hands-on experience or come to one of our events and actually taste the food. And then they're like, okay, this is really good. I never would have thought of this before to eat this or to cook this. How do I do this? And it's just um, a different dynamic, I believe. I know two things, Nikki, that the Growing Justice Institute focuses on is having residents of the community come up with their own solutions and having decision-making power in the community. Why is that important? And can you give a couple of examples of that? It's important because usually the people who know the most about a community are the people who live there and exist there every day. But a gap in the way that decisions are made in this country is that a lot of times the people who are in control of development money or resources for that community don't live there. And a lot of times they can't live there because if you're in control of a whole city, you can't live in every district. So it's also about scale and how small are you talking about when it comes to what economies of scale work best for decision making ability. So we definitely advocate for having smaller pods of people that can inform decision makers and make their own decisions. And when it comes to the Growing Justice Institute, I think something that's really significant as well is context. Because a lot of times if you live in a community, and I myself am no exception, before I started People's Grocery, the community that I lived in, I knew a lot about what wasn't there. But I didn't have context when it came to the social determinants of health or the political economies of food or how food even travels in a city. I think I still struggle with that one. But the more that you learn about things like that, the more you can transform the the day-to-day information that you know into something that would be useful for making governance decisions. And that's really what we try to do. How does it make for a more cohesive community? Well, the more that people know enough context to be informed about governance decisions, the more people take ownership of the place where they live. And the more you take ownership of the place where you live, the more you protect it. And I, I really feel like the more you protect it, the more violence goes down, the more domestic abuse goes down, and the more that the things that we do to ourselves actually decrease. We have enough problems with things that people do to us. We need not be perpetuating some of our own issues that we currently are. Other than those residents who, are, who may already be involved in people's groceries programs, how do you get others involved and invested in this? Well, part of the point with the Growing Justice Institute is that it's a whole lot harder to try to have deep relationships with 30,000 people than it is to have deep relationships with maybe 100 people and then let them have the deep relationships with who they already know. So part of the hope with the Growing Justice Institute is that all of the people who might participate in the micro business in Jackie's Garden are getting the same benefit that they would get if they interacted with us, only the relationship is being held in a much different way so that they get more individual attention and that we're actually empowering people within the community to be in relationship with each other and with us as opposed to concentrating all the relationships within a small team at a nonprofit organization. Do you have perhaps an example you can think of to share with us? Let me think. Okay, so... I would say our cooking class is a good example. We had a cooking class at People's Grocery where we worked with a contractor who produced a cooking class that reached eight-ish people every eight weeks. And we had relationships with all eight of those people. Now, Shalina, who is part of the Growing Justice Institute, who was running the cooking class, um, she is now in partnership with New Foundry Ventures 
and Lifelong Medical to produce the cooking class that we sponsor. And she is in relationship with all of those people so that the business that she's working at now, she can connect those people to her business. And that business, we don't even have a relationship with. (laughs) So the connections are actually becoming viral and moving away from us, which is the only way you can actually reach thousands of people. And that's exactly what we want to see. Has there ever been any resistance to the programs? Are there naysayers who say this will never work or people who say things are fine here, leave us alone? Any stories about converting the skeptics in the neighborhood? Um, I don't have any stories about converting the skeptics because I feel like part of our strategy as well now is that when we were trying to reach everyone, we did deal with skeptics all the time. But when we did the strategy of let's find that one person that everybody's always thought was crazy because they were always talking about healthy food all the time. <laughs> let's let's work with them and let them know they have allies and that people who actually agree with them. So we actually make it our business of surrounding ourselves with people that agree with us so that all of us together can then interact with people that might need to be converted. But in the end of the day, you don't actually have to convert anyone. You just have to do what you do and be happy about it. That's And that's really the key. It's not just do what you do, but it's do what you do and be happy and joyful about it because it's the joy that brings people in. And it's that laughter and the happiness and the good feelings that you get interacting with people that you love that draws people in. You can't evangelize and you can't try to convert because that's not going to work. Then it's a beliefs war. You just have to actually connect with people on a really real level. And that's what I feel like we do now. So there's not really much to disagree about because we don't engage people in the beginning about what their opinions are about diabetes or nutrition. We ask them what foods they like, and then we try to sit down and have a meal together. Nikki, how many West Oakland residents have participated in people's grocery programs or have been recipients of fresh, healthy food from people's grocery gardens and markets and grub boxes? The statistic that I know is that over the last 10 years, a little over 9,000 people have increased their access to knowledge of and interaction with healthy foods as a result of our programming. And that's not including the other thousands of people from outside of West Oakland who have visited our gardens and interacted with our programs and all of that. You'd think that building food security for the future would require lots of programs for youth. What does People's Grocery have in youth programs? Our youth programming is actually now really embedded into all of our other programming. So a couple of the Growing Justice Institute projects do focus on youth and trying to get youth involved with helping to actually distribute healthy food or teach cooking classes and things like that. And then um, we have a couple of other projects like our Highland Hospital Bite to Balance project, which was a case study that we did last year where 15 families that had children who were dealing with diet-related disease received a grub box for free for six months. And then Highland Hospital tracked their health indicators over the six months as well. And so we did programming with them once a month to try to figure out how they were incorporating this new healthy food into their lives. And the focus was on families that had children who were dealing with diet-related disease. So there's a couple other ways that we interact with youth, but those are a few examples for you. Nikki, do you have anything to say about uh, the idea of creating a sense of ownership in the community and how that happens through um, some of people's groceries programs? Well, I think what I said before about the Growing Justice Institute still holds, that that 
that's a leadership development program because it's supposed to give people ownership over not only their own health, but over the community's health. And I think the part of the Growing Justice Institute that really does that is the workshop series because it's a fairly long workshop series. It's six months long. And every week you get a different topic ranging from health to economic development to business development, all of those things. And our hope is that by the time people come out of the workshop series, they have a lot of context for the kind of change that they want to see. And information is power. Nikki Henderson, as executive director of People's Grocery for approximately two years, what would you say is one of the biggest changes you've seen in the community of West Oakland? One of the things that I really wanted to do and see happen when I got there was a movement kind of towards system change and high-level thinking and down to really working on leadership development with people on the ground, as opposed to existing in this kind of amorphous middle space where we do direct service programming. And that's what I've seen. So the Growing Justice Institute has transformed our direct service programming into a real partnership with people in the community so that we have our hands in many more pots when it comes to people that want to do direct service. So what are some of the pots that you have your hands in? Well, like Jackie's Garden, for example, and Shalina's cooking class and, you know, our divine raw fellow and the woman who's doing a transportation system to get people from her housing complex to healthy food. I mean, every single one of the Growing Justice Institute fellows have these incredible projects. And so instead of, you know, having one staff person doing one project, we have six partners, seven partners that are doing these incredible things. And then with our systems change work, we're managing an alliance of labor and business and policy and environmental justice organizations that are working to really create a positive political and policy environment for food retail. So that if any of our micro businesses really want to become mid-sized businesses, the policies are that are in place really support them and protect their ability to be successful small businesses. So Jacqueline, what What's the end result with the the food that is grown in the garden that you oversee? The garden food will go to um, create a more diverse uh, menu for the breakfast program, as well as go to stock a community store down the street where people will be able to purchase um, really awesome, sustainable, organic vegetables and some really... Um, fabulous heirloom vegetables, I even that uh, at a low cost, where if you were going to another store or somewhere um, similar to get something like that, it would cost you a a pretty penny, but they'll be able to to have access to those vegetables at a very, very reasonable cost, as well as free when they come to the um, to eat breakfast. Nikki, is there any data or studies that show the results, the impact of several thousand people over the years um, through people's groceries, programs and markets, grub box, etc., and t- the impact of having healthy, fresh food accessible to them on a regular basis? You know, we're actually right now working with several students from St. Mary's College and from UC Berkeley who are helping us do that data and evaluation of the program. Much of our data and evaluation is qualitative, 
because we find that in the mainstream health world, any good evaluator will tell you it's very, very difficult to show the correlation between this one thing that you introduced into someone's life and then their blood pressure going down <laughs> or things like that. Like it's the, the correlation is very, very hard to show, which is why a lot of times evaluation in the mainstream health world is around shifting the food environment or creating a healthy environment because that's usually the only thing you can prove. And so we can, we do show that the food environment for those people has shifted. And we try to collect stories from them on the things that they've noticed in their lives. And even if we can't show a concrete connection between the shift in the food environment and those changes, we can show that the change has indeed happened. So thank you so much, Nikki Henderson and Jacqueline Thomas with The People's Grocery in West Oakland, California. We appreciate you being on Peace Talks. Thank you. Thank you. For links to the work of the People's Grocery in West Oakland and more about the Fiestas Project in Albuquerque, New Mexico, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. You'll find this program in the 2012 season. And on our episode page, scroll down all the way to find our links and other resources on the topic of food security and eliminating urban food deserts. There, too, you can see photos, read a partial transcript, and hear this entire program again or do the same with any episode in our series going back to 2003. All at peacetalksradio.com. There, too, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter, subscribe to our podcast, and, here's the important part, make a tax-deductible contribution there to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your local public radio station. Any amount would help, but do your part at peacetalksradio.com. Support comes from all of our listeners who have already made those contributions, as well as from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the Paul Ray Peace Prize, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Our theme music was composed and performed by Allie Adelman. For Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. (laughs) ¶¶